The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We have a gentleman uh, from, I think it's Minnesota, Wisconsin, Ken, where are you from? Anyway, he uh, made us, he cut this out for us, uh, the little nativity scene. And the other thing that he asked me to do was to get a thing full of Hershey's Kisses for all of you. And so when you go by or any time until it's empty, these are for you from Ken, who attends online. And so uh, uh, that was uh, his Christmas present to the church was that little hand-carved nativity scene and uh, the, uh, the uh, Hershey's Kisses. So dig in. Let's see here. We're going to read the uh, 45th Psalm. Psalm 45, to the chief musician set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and kesha, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty, because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Now, our sermon today is Exodus 37, 1 through 29. It's entitled Christ in Every Detail. And I'm not going to read those verses because we're going to read them as we go along today rather than doing a line-by-line -line verse. So just be on that page, Exodus 37, 1 through 29. And I want you to know that on the night before preparing this sermon, I was really distressed. I lay there asking the Lord for guidance on how to present these verses. Other than the tense of the verbs, and I've said this, they're almost identical to those for the instructions which were given to Moses. Literally, there are a handful of words which are different than those previous instructions. And to me, simply cutting and pasting those many sermons and repeating everything that was said would make no sense at all. And so I struggled with what to say. 
You know me, I like to analyze things. I like to give you details, and I want you to be prepared in the Word of God by knowing those details. And it's not my thing to make flowery sermons or anything like that. So in the end, I started typing, and out came today's sermon. It is more a theological rather than a pictorial presentation of Christ. I hope that in listening, you will have a better appreciation for the life of our Lord and how he fits into the marvelous plan of redemption, which issues directly from the mind of God. The things which are described in these verses all point to him, as we have already seen. Rather than seeing how they picture him, today we will get a brief look at how what he did is fulfilled in them. It is a ton of verses to go through, but don't let the brevity of the analysis disappoint you. The words are short, precise, and uncomplicated, but they all point to the majestic glory of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Our text verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 10, it's verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. God prepared a body for Christ out of the stuff of the world. And then he stepped into that body and revealed himself to us. All of the articles used for the construction of the sanctuary were simply given in anticipation of him. Each item chosen was with the intent that we would see him and know about him. The same is true with him as a person. God selected individual occurrences in history and placed them in his word so that when he arrived, it would be obvious that he was who was spoken of in those ancient writings. Unfortunately, most in his time didn't recognize it. And today, people are still missing it. But for those who are willing to accept the inspiration of Scripture and that this inspired word points to him, the two merge into one magnificent masterpiece of marvel. The stories tell of the one to come, and the details of those stories tell of what he did. Let's not miss this as we search out his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four individual thoughts for you today. The first is the ark and the mercy seat. It's verses one through nine. Verse one, then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side of it. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to bear the ark. The instructions for the ark that we saw pictured Christ in every single detail. In a broad stroke of the finer detail, it represents the Lord as the God-man, who is the fulfiller and embodiment of the law. The gold, his deity, the wood, his humanity, the molding around it signifies his kingly status. The four rings reflect the four gospels. The poles are the two testaments of the Bible. These and a hundred other details were all minutely described, word by word, so that you could see Christ and his work fulfilling and embodying the law on our behalf. This ark had to come about somehow, and so the size, materials, and details were given as pictorial representations of Christ to come. And Christ had to come about somehow as well. The Bible shows that he didn't just pop into existence in order to save us. Rather, he came from God, perfect and pure in all ways, 
His infinite nature came forth to unite with his finite creation. And his human nature came from the line of humanity, not suddenly as if there was a person who was arbitrarily chosen. Rather, the line of humanity from which he came was meticulously recorded, even from the very first man who ever lived. At key points in his ancestral records, individuals are highlighted, showing who they were and what they did, but also being recorded in who they came from and thus who they would lead to. There was the first man, Adam, who rebelled against his creator, but who later demonstrated faith in the promise of restoration. There was Enoch, who is noted in such high regard that God took him so that he wouldn't see death. He was a man of faith and was rewarded for that faith. Noah was a preacher of righteousness and a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In a world full of wickedness so great that God determined to destroy it, Noah kept his faith and became the inheritor of a new world. The line continued on through others, great names that the world celebrates, but it also included some that the world condemns for their actions. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, but in a surprising way in that it is through his two daughters that he leads to Christ. Yes, through both of them. He slept with his first daughter, and she had a son and named him Moab. Ruth, the wife of Boaz, descends from Moab. He slept with the other daughter, and she had a son named Ben-Ami. Solomon's wife, Naama, who gave birth to Rehoboam, and who is in the genealogy of Christ, descended from Ben-Ami. Again and again, surprising people show up in Jesus' genealogy. Some were faith-filled souls, and some were scoundrels. There was a prostitute of Jericho, meaning she was a descendant of Canaan, the cursed grandson of Noah. David, despite being a great man of faith, was also a fallible man who made great errors in his life. Step by step, the history of Jesus' ancestry is recorded, quite often in such a way that it takes real effort to determine who is actually in it. But each story, which reveals each person, shows that God was watching all along, ensuring that the materials used were perfect for the body prepared. Just as the ark was carefully and meticulously constructed, so was the human genealogy of Jesus, carefully and meticulously arranged. And then... When it was ready, it was wrapped in the pure gold of God's deity. The ark was prepared and the man was ready to do what was purposed from the creation of the world. He was born under the law, which is the meticulously recorded standard for the people of Israel. For any under that law, there was the need for perfect, absolute perfect obedience to it. As the law itself says in the book of Leviticus, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which which, if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The entire time of the law detailed records of the lives and actions of the people. Throughout that time, all these records were kept. They often don't seem to correlate to the purpose of the Ark of the Testimony at all, and yet they all do perfectly. The time of the law is given to show us deep truths concerning the law itself. One, it is to show us God's perfect, holy, and righteous standard. Two, it was given to show us how utterly sinful sin is to God. Three, it was, to given, it was given to show us that no one, not a single person in well over 1,500 years of Israel's history could perfectly meet the standards of that law. Four, it was given to show us the need for God's grace in the giving of the Day of Atonement and God's mercy in the covering which that atonement granted. Five, it was given to show us that in the granting of the grace and mercy of the Day of Atonement, 
the person so forgiven was deemed as if he were sinless before God, forgiven and free from sin's penalty for yet another year. Six, it was given to show that the law could never take away sin completely because each year they would have to come back and be forgiven again for the sins of the previous year, showing that the law could make none perfect. And seven, the law showed us our need for something else, something greater than the law itself. It showed us our need for Jesus. If none could meet the standards of the law except for a vicarious act carried out on the Day of Atonement, and the Day of Atonement was incapable of making the sinner free once and for all, then in order to be made perfect, a perfect substitute would be needed. Enter the God-man, enter Jesus. He came, pictured by this marvelous ark. He faithfully lived out his life under the law, never violating its precepts. Thus he embodies that law. This is pictured in the placing of the tablets of the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Testimony. Just as it enclosed those tablets, Christ embodied what they represent. But there is the truth that no top was detailed for this box in the instructions that were given in verses 1 through 5 that we just read. Its top remained open, and the perfect law of God, that which could never be met by mere mortal fallen man, was open and exposed to the world in that condition. It is a note of condemnation. This man, Christ Jesus, did fulfill the law, and we stand naked and exposed in his presence. The law which he embodies condemns us. Moreover, the man who radiates out that law stands as a witness against us. Thus, condemnation is found in his presence. Is that the end of the story? Is this where we perish? Do we look at Jesus, see God's perfection radiating out of him, and thus become consumed by his perfectly pure glory? The answer is, well, at least for those who live by faith in him, no. As noted, within the law, there was a provision of mercy for those who failed to meet that law. It is found in what is known as the Day of Atonement. On this day, each year, this one single day, the men of Israel were told to go to Jerusalem and confess their sins before the Lord. Detailed instructions for this day are noted in Leviticus 16. In following those instructions, both by the people and by the high priest of Israel, the people were forgiven of their sins. The Day of Atonement centered on the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal. That blood was then applied to another piece of furniture, one distinct from, but directly connected to, the ark itself. Verse 6, he also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length and a cubit and a half its width. He made the two cherubim of beaten gold. He made them of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end on this side and the other cherub at the other end on that side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were towards the mercy seat. Zahav Tahor, pure gold. The absolute perfection of Christ is seen in the substance. The mercy seat, the place where God would pour out his forgiveness on Israel each year was this spot. The law contained within the ark was covered by this most holy seat of mercy, thus hiding it from sight. If the tablets of the law were looked upon by man, only death could result. This is actually seen in the Bible in the account of the ark returning to Israel after having been captured by the Philistines. Eventually, it was returned to Israel, and when it was, it came to Beth Shemesh. There, the people dared to look into the ark, and their lives were forfeit. The mercy seat had been removed, 
and mercy was removed with it. But there's more to the mercy seat than just the gold. There was something applied to the gold which brought about the mercy, blood. The people didn't receive mercy simply because there was a mercy seat. If they did, then they would have received it continuously because the mercy seat never left the ark. Rather, it was only once a year on the Day of Atonement that the propitiation for the sins of the people came about. And that came about through a specific ritual which involved the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal. This innocent life was taken in place of the guilt of the people. The Lord received this payment as a temporary stay of his wrath year by year. It was the blood which provided forgiveness, and it was the blood which rested upon the mercy seat. Without the covering of blood, mercy would not be granted. When the mercy seat was removed from the ark at Bet Shemesh, the blood was removed as well, and only wrath was left. The substitute's blood was forsaken as the people looked upon God's perfect, pure, and holy law. In type and picture, the pure gold mercy seat is Christ. It is his divine and perfect nature covered by the blood of his humanity, which was shed to take away the sin of the world. What the innocent animal only pictured, Christ fulfilled perfectly. He had lived out the law without erring in any point. He thus embodied the law. But in order for that to be complete, he also had to die in fulfillment of the law. Until he died, the law wasn't actually fulfilled because his death was a necessary part of the law, pictured by the death of the animal. Forgiveness cannot come for the sins of one without the death of another. But the one to die could not have sins of his own, or he would simply die in his own sin. The law would be his judge, and the law would condemn. Only a perfect man who had lived perfectly under the law could both fulfill the law and die in the place of another. In this act, the blood would thus satisfy the law. And in its satisfaction, it would also make the law obsolete. A law which is fulfilled is finished. The law could no longer have mastery over him. Further, as he was innocent before the law, then his blood could take away the sins of any who received the payment, just as occurred with Israel on the Day of Atonement. But unlike Israel, who had to come year by year because the law was not fulfilled in the death of an animal, in Jesus, the law is fulfilled for the believer completely and perfectly. And I wish people could understand this. We have the Hebrew Roots Movement, which is just alive and well in the world today. They're the equivalent of what were called the Judaizers of the uh, book of Galatians. These folks just can't seem to get this. They keep reinserting the law, reinserting the law, when it is Christ who embodies that law. And then the mercy seat was put on top of that, and his blood was shed, all pictured in what we have been looking at, this marvelous piece of furniture. It is done. The law is finished. You want to eat pork chop tonight? Go ahead. Do it without any conscience that you're doing wrong, because the law is annulled. It is fulfilled. It is set aside. It is obsolete. It is nailed to the cross. Every one of those things that I just said is a part of the Bible. Annulled, fulfilled, obsolete, set aside, nailed to the cross. We are not under the law. We are under grace. There's no need to come back a second or a third time to be perfected before the law. Rather, we are perfected once and for all through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. But there is more. In the fulfillment and annulment of the law for us, there must be something to replace it. The law was based on a covenant. In its termination, a new covenant then came in to replace it. The law was never intended as a means to an end. 
It was, from its inception, regarded as a temporary step in the path to full and complete restoration with God. This new covenant is explained by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament with words which are cited from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Here's what it says in Hebrews 10, verses 16 through 18. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It's either Christ Jesus or it is nothing. And that's how it goes. We talked about that today with the heretic Hagee, where he says there's a dual covenant. Israel can work out deeds of the law. People are under Christ, can come to him through them. And everybody is saved in Kumbaya, and that is absolutely false. It is either Christ, and he is the end of the law, or you are bound to the law, and you are condemned by that law, because there's no mercy seat on top of that ark. The perfection of God's law radiates out, and it will consume you. In other words, this new covenant is received by grace. The sins of man are not counted against them. It says, now where there is remission of these, meaning the remission of the sins through the blood of Christ, there's no longer an offering for sin. Christ's offering is a one-time and for all-time offering for sin. As this is so, then the sins of the old covenant, whatever they may be, are forgiven in Christ. Further, they can no longer be counted against that person. Man is dead to the law through the death of Christ. I want you all to go through the law, and we're going to. We're going to continue going through the law. See what condemns your heart from there, and then lay it at the foot of the cross. It is forgiven in him. We are no longer under law, but grace. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6. He says, now if we died with Christ, Christ died and we died with him, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For that death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the act of receiving Jesus Christ, we are following a process which includes literally all of the precepts of the law. We may never have killed a person, but we are guilty before the law just as if we did. If one violates any part of the law, the law is broken. In receiving Christ, we partake in the death of the high priest, and so our guilt in regards to the sixth commandment died with him. Under the law, we are guilty for eating certain types of meat, but in Christ, that guilt is taken away. Sin can only be imputed where law exists. In Christ, the sin which results from a violation of the old covenant can no longer be imputed because in Christ, the law is made obsolete. I'll give you another example. People love to say, I'm a Sabbatarian, I worship on the Sabbath, and everybody else is going to hell because they don't worship on the Sabbath. Let me tell you what, there are how many commandments on the tablets of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, that's right, that's why they're called the Ten Commandments. They are in the ark, and the ark is covered by the mercy seat, and the blood is on the mercy seat. Everything in that ark is fulfilled in Christ. We don't take one commandment back out and say, you have to be obligated to this, and you're not forgiven if you don't do this. The fact is that we're not supposed to be killing people. We're not supposed to be coveting. We're not supposed to be idolaters and all of the other things that the law says on those Ten Commandments. But if we do that, we are forgiven in Christ, if we are truly in Christ. 
And we don't say you're not forgiven because you're a Sabbatarian or you're not a Sabbatarian, and we are. That, it doesn't work that way. It is either all or it is nothing. And in Christ, it is all. And people need to understand this. This Hebrew Roots movement is absolute poison in the world today, but it's been going on since the very beginning. Like the cherubim on the mercy seat who look towards the place of shed blood with their wings held high, let us look likewise to the place of propitiation where the blood of the sinless Son of God was shed. Let us look to Calvary with arms raised high in victory. Let us look to Jesus. Thank God for Jesus Christ who is the grace of God poured out for all who will but believe. He is our place of mercy and propitiation. Into his presence I came, the ruler of all. I came boldly because the mercy seat was there. On the name of Jesus I did call, and covered by his blood with God, fellowship I could share. I was going astray and was as lost as I could be. Yes, one of the world's many lost children. But in a mere moment, mercy found me. I was cleansed and purified right there and then. It was at the spot where my Lord did die and where his blood soaked into the ground. There at the place of mercy for him, I did cry, and there in that place, mercy was found. Our second thought today is the table of showbread. It's verses 10 through 16. Verse 10, he made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold all around it. Also, he made a frame of a handbreadth all around it and made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that were at his four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table, and he overlaid them with gold. And he made of pure gold the utensils which were on the table, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, and its pitchers for pouring. A table of showbread with twelve loaves. The table and all of its utensils were clearly and perfectly displayed in the work of Christ. We saw this as we looked at each verse and even single words. He, being the true bread from heaven, is sinless and perfect. The loaves which were to be placed on this table reflect his people, his redeemed. As the law is fulfilled and annulled in Christ, those who call on him are granted his sinless perfection, pictured by the twelve loaves without yeast. As they are before him in the holy place, it indicates that we are deemed as sinless and therefore are acceptable in God's presence. God made Christ Jesus our substitute, counting to him our sin. In exchange, we were granted his righteousness. What a deal. Think of it. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Paul explains this to us with these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 21. For he made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In being made our sin, he then took our punishment for the sins that we committed, and he died for those sins. However, because he had no sin of his own, his death was only for those who sinned. Death could not hold him because he had never sinned. With his work accomplished, he could truly be considered as our bread from heaven. His resurrection proved it, and his sinless perfection under the law was vindicated in that act. We can now participate in his life by receiving his work. From that, we become a part of the lump of bread, which is his body. And so not only is he the bread of life, he is our bread of life. He is the one who sustains us at the beginning of our walk and who ever after will as well. We are always acceptable in God's presence because of Christ Jesus' work. Sinless once, 
and sinless for all time. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our bread of life. He is our bread of life, the one who sustains us. And through his life, we have been given life too. A constant theme in the Bible it does discuss from the beginning to the end, yes, through and through. In Christ, we can draw near to the Lord and in his presence forever remain. We are counted as holy, so says his word. Never again will God look upon us with disdain. Justified, we are allowed access once again. Through the blood of Christ, our fellowship is restored. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the sons of men, for those who have not his calling ignored. Our third thought today is the lampstand. It's verses 17 through 24. Verse 17, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. Of hammered work, he made the lampstand. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers were of the same piece. And six branches came out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch, and an ornamental knob and a flower, and three bowls made like an almond blossoms on the other branch, with an or ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four bowls made like almond blossoms, each with an ornamental knob and a flower. There was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece. All of it was one hammered piece of pure gold, and he made the seven lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold, he made it with all its utensils. The sermon that we did on that, those particular verses, some of you might remember it, it was so detailed. It was so marvelous to see what those few verses pictured. Mom walked up here and she whispered to me. She said, I'm going to have to watch this like 20 times. I, I just am not going to retain everything. And then Burke, who reads every sermon, he doesn't attend here because his son works at another church. He reads every sermon that I do on Sunday and he sends me an email about it on Monday. And he actually took that sermon and he cut and pasted it and he sent it out to every single person that he sends his Bible work out to because he says the detail is astonishing, which those pictures, those details pictured, absolutely astonishing what is revealed in the menorah, which stands in the holy place of the tabernacle. In the Bible, like in life, there is a contrast between light and darkness. Light is life. Light provides clarity and light grants surety. Darkness is opposed to this. The lampstand, or menorah, symbolizes that which provides the true light, Christ Jesus. The details of the menorah were so minutely given because it details the marvelous work of Christ, which runs all the way throughout redemptive history. He is the light of the world, and everything associated with him gives us guidance and illumination as we trek westward, back to the very presence of God. The menorah was designed so that six branches would all come out of one, supported by that one. The middle branch is the Messiah. It's Christ Jesus. And from him stems out everything else by which the workings of God are illuminated. As he himself said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. From Christ comes the sevenfold spirit of the Lord, which directs all aspects of both the creative and the redemptive processes. Concerning creation, from him comes all of that which is created, and therefore everything found in the six days of creation rests upon him. It is all dependent on him for its existence, both initial and ongoing. He's also reflected in the seventh day, that of rest. 
His human arrival at the year 4,000 is the very middle of the 7,000 year span of human history. It indicates that his advent is that light, which lights up all of time from day one, even until the last day. In his coming, his life is that which gives rest to all who came before him and to all who have come since. Human history is centered on the light which shines forth in his incarnation. And concerning redemption, he is the center of the dispensations of time. In his advent and through his work, he bestowed God's grace upon mankind. Thus, his work is that which illuminates all seven dispensations of redemptive history. Each hangs upon what he has done for us through this redemptive process. There was innocence, and when that was lost, there came corresponding promise. There was conscience, and with that came corresponding law. And there was government, and with it will come the corresponding millennial reign of Christ. All of these are ultimately dependent on and illuminated by the grace of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, the middle part of that menorah. And all of this is revealed in and by him who lights up scripture. The word is received from him and it points to him. And it is only properly understood by his illumination. And this illumination is twofold. First, it is illuminated about him. He is the subject of it. And until this is realized, the Bible is a book which really makes no sense at all. You pick it up and you don't know what he's talking about. From beginning to end, you have no idea until you come to the part about Christ and it all starts to make sense. And secondly, it is illuminated by him. He is the one to make it understood as he opens minds to its hidden truths, which all concern him. In all ways, Christ is the true light of the world, which brings sense, harmony, and even everlasting joy to that which would otherwise seem illogical, chaotic, and frankly, downright hopeless. Thank God for Jesus Christ, the light of the world. The purest of gold fit for a king was to be used to make a seven-branched lampstand. Seeing its beauty makes my heart sing, the workmanship marvelous, stunning, and grand. Every detail is so beautiful, each knob and flower the glistening of the branches as they catch the light. It shines in the dark for hour after hour, illuminating the holy place throughout the night. The glory of God is seen in each detail. Every branch speaks out a marvelous story, and in what it pictures, nothing will fail, as the Lord reveals to us his unending glory. Our fourth thought today is the altar and the oil and the incense. It's verses 25 through 29. Verse 25, he made the incense altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its width a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around and its horns. He also made for it a molding of gold all around it. He made two rings of gold for it under its molding by its two corners on both sides as holders for the poles with which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. The construction of the altar of incense is not listed in the same place as it was in the giving of the instructions. It was detailed much, much later in those instructions. And the oil and the incense was detailed even later than that. The reason for their unusual placement in those instructions was explained. And we saw that it was for exceptionally profound reasons. But in the construction of them, they are noted now because they point to the room in which they are to be placed and used, the holy place before the veil. 
every detail of these things was carefully analyzed and all of it pointed to Christ in his work for us and through us. The incense itself represents prayer. Prayer is something that man has engaged in since the earliest times in human history, and it is something which has occurred at all points in history since then. It can be found in every culture and even among those who claim that there is no God at all. As soon as they get into the foxhole, they start praying to God. The altar pictures Christ as our means of acceptable prayer to God. The problem with man is that he has sin in his life. It is an infection that he is born with. And it is something that only increases as he continues to live out his life. And in that state, the Bible tells us the natural outcome that occurs. Here's what it says in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Sin separates man from God. And so he will not hear our prayers. Christ came to remedy that. In his life, he lived out the law for us. And in his death, he removed our sin from us. It is through Christ and through Christ alone that our prayers can be heard. This is the amazing thing about the world. There are innumerable religions praying to God in an even larger number of ways. And yet it is simply wasted breath accompanied by useless offerings. That was reflected in our text verse today. In Hebrews, it said, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. What do we think that we can offer to God that he will be satisfied with? We can't bribe him. He doesn't need money, food, clothes, or any other thing. The Bible shows us that the only thing that will, in fact, please him is faith. For example, there is a steady stream of speculation as to why the Lord accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's offering. People pursue long theological discussions about animal sacrifice as opposed to grain offerings or fruit offerings. They look to the crimson thread of blood offerings which fill the whole Bible and which point to Christ's shed blood. On and on the speculation goes, but the Bible simply and clearly explains the matter. Hebrews 11, verse 4, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he, being dead, still speaks. The first two words of that verse explain it all. By faith. People come to God with offerings in an attempt to bribe him into listening to them. But God rejects that. What he is looking for is one who has faith in what he has promised, both in what he has done in relation to that promise and what he will continue to do in relation to it. And the promise was given to the first man, Adam. It was the promise of a Messiah. Because of this, only faith in Messiah brings prayers to God's ears. For the world today, the Messiah has come. And so only prayers that are in accord with this Messiah revealed, meaning Jesus, are prayers that will be heard. No prayer outside of him is acceptable. No, not even from his chosen people, Israel. Once again, back to Hagee, the heretic dual covenantalism. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Their prayers are not heard because they're not praying through the only possible avenue of prayers reaching God's ears, which is the Messiah revealed. And as I said, the Old Testaments didn't have the Messiah, but they had faith in the promised Messiah. And that's why Abraham was declared righteous even before the coming of Christ, is because he believed in God by faith. After the coming of Christ, it has to be in the Messiah revealed. 
No other prayer is acceptable. People don't want to hear this. All paths lead to God. Muslims pray five times a day. Surely their prayers are heard. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. All of the incense on this planet rising from a Buddhist temple will not reach the nostrils of God. It is through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. And this is what the Bible reveals. And people want to go to any other extreme possible than face the reality of that. Why? It's so simple. God's done all the work. Surely there must be something I can do to help him out. He doesn't want that. He wants your faith. If you're willing to exercise your faith, you will, your prayers will be heard by God. The Messiah has come and they must come through him. And within the church, there are no secondary levels to his authority. We cannot pray to or through images of him. We can't pray to saints or his mother or to any other living intermediary. We are either in Christ and our prayers to God are heard because they are offered to him through Christ or they are unheard by him. In the actual incense and the anointing oil, we saw that all of it pointed to Christ, to the word of God and to the work which Christ fulfilled as is recorded in his word. God chose specific ingredients whose words came from particular root words to guide us to a complete and full appreciation of what each thing symbolized in Christ those symbols are fulfilled. He is the fulfillment of each sweet-smelling fragrance and each dab of precious oil. Through him, the spirit is given. The mouth of the prophets speak, and the word is inspired. Through him, our prayers rise without hindrance to God who is pleased to hear them and to respond to them according to his infinite wisdom. Some prayers may go unanswered, but in Christ, none go unheard. Thank God for the precious gift which he molded throughout all of human history in order to be a place, a body in which he could dwell. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our mediator. God worked meticulously and exactingly to lead from Adam to Christ. And on the way there, he worked in the same fashion in giving us pictures of him by which and through which he worked for and responded to his people, Israel. In Jesus, the person is revealed. And in Christ, the pictures are fulfilled. Let nothing hinder us from our devotion to Christ. And let nothing obscure our vision of him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In his presence, we will stand in the very presence of God. Why should we look anywhere else now as we await that marvelous moment when we will behold him with our own eyes and see the fulfillment of these mere types and shadows from the Old Testament. Let us be people of faith who respond to the words of Scripture with a sense of awe and wonder as we behold the glory of Christ, letting it transform us into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Though the world has come to the point where we are mocked for our faith, let us be those who stand approved and unashamed, holding fast to the great and eternal words which reveal that same faith that we possess. But I'd like you all to know that you need to be one of the greats in the kingdom of God by being one of the greats of faith now. Stand and rejoice in Christ. Even if though for a little while you may be grieved by various trials, know and understand that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than pure gold which perishes, will be found to praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. Stand on your faith in the one whom even though you have not seen, him you still love. Abide securely in his word and revel in the marvelous promises which lie ahead.
And if you've never taken the time to simply call out by faith in Christ, today is the day to do it. I don't need to tell you what all this stuff symbolizes. You've heard it for the past 20, 30, 40 minutes. It's all about Christ. God is trying to wake us up, even from these obscure passages of the Old Testament, where every single word, you know, the, the spices that were used, they don't even know what the spices are. Some may say cassia and some may say cane. They don't know what the spice is, but they know what the spice root word came from. And that's why it was so important to understand that is because where the word came from is what shows us Christ. Who cares what the cane is or if it's this spice or that spice? What matters is what God was trying to show us with that spice is that it came from, for example, a word that means to drop. And in the Bible, drop means to prophesy. And so he is the spirit of prophecy. All of these things, everything about it points to Jesus and what he has done. Wake up! We need Jesus. The whole world needs Jesus. And we go out and we, I'm going to pray to this person or I'm going to go through the Pope or I'm going to go to a Buddhist temple and I'm going to shake incense and God's going to be happy with me. And none of it will work because the problem is already there with the sin in our lives. Deal with the sin at the cross of Calvary, pictured by the ark and the mercy seat and the blood, and you will be saved. And then God will hear every single prayer that you ever make to him. He'll be delighted to hear those prayers because when you pray, you're showing faith. Faith in Jesus. He's delighted. He may not answer them, but he does hear them. Be pleased to be people of faith in Christ Jesus. Our closing verse comes from John 5.39. Kind of sums up the whole thing here. You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The whole Bible, speaking of Jesus, Old Testament and New, every single word is dealing with Jesus Christ, and he stood there and he said that. And yet we'd rather go out and say, all paths lead to God. I can go out and do any perverse thing I want and I can be right with God. And God says, no. God says, no. Wake up. Next week is Exodus 38, 1 through 8. Just a couple verses. We have no fear where shall end our earthly trod. It's entitled justified and sanctified before our God. That'll be our 101st Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. You're all here listening to the word of God today. You all know that you need Jesus, and I don't know the secrets of your hearts. I assume that every person in here is saved and is called on Jesus, but I don't know that. Only you do. God is trying to wake you up, and every person that's online right now. Hello. Jesus wants you to come to him and give your life to him, and then be a great person of God by being a person of faith. He has exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, all of the sin in the world, all of the things that hold you back from being a person of God, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him. Be a person of faith and he will do marvelous things for you, guaranteed of that, and through you if you will allow him. Our uh, poem today is called Christ in Every Detail. 29 verses, not as long as last week, but it's still a lot. Get out your pillows. Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, as it was intended to be. A cubit and a half its width, this was understood, and a cubit and a half its height, you see. He overlaid it with pure gold, inside and outside he did it overlay, and made on it a molding of gold all around. Such was done, as the Lord did say. And he cast for it four rings of gold in its four corners to be applied, two rings on one side, as the Lord had told, and two rings on the other side. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold as was understood. 
and he put the poles into the rings of the ark at each side to bear the ark to the instructions he did abide. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits was its length as it was to be, and a cubit and a half its width. Such were its dimensions, you see. He made two cherubim of beaten gold. He made them of one piece at two ends of the mercy seat, just as he had been told. One cherub at one end on this side, and the other cherub at the other end on that side. A marvelous feat. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings, as was meet. They faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. He made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length. It was made just right. A cubit its width, as was understood, and a cubit and a half its height. And with pure gold he did it overlay, and made a molding of gold all around it, just as the Lord did say. He also made a frame of handbreadth all around, and made a molding of gold for the frame all around, surely its appearance did astound. And he cast for it four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners. They were at its four legs, just as he was told. The rings were close to the frame. This is where, as holders for the poles, the table to bear. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table, and he overlaid them with gold, as was understood. In fashioning this, he was found to be able." He made of pure gold the utensils, which were on the table, as you see, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, and its pitchers for pouring, each made exquisitely. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers were of the same piece, his duties he did not shirk. And six branches came out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side, care to the instructions he applied. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch, you see, with an ornamental knob and a flower. He followed the directions carefully. And three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, the directions he did understand, with an ornamental knob and a flower, and so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four bowls, like almond blossoms, so he made each with its ornamental knob and flower, so it was arrayed. There was a knob, so he did do. Under the first two branches of the same, it was his aim. A knob under the second two branches of the same, too. And a knob under the third two branches of the same. According to the six branches extending from it, he did as the directions did submit. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece, as he was told. All of it was one hammered piece of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps again, just as he was told, its wick trimmers and its trays of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold he made it, with all these utensils, just as the directions did submit. He made the incense altar of acacia wood. In this manner he made it, as was understood. Its length was a cubit, and its width a cubit. It was square, as by instructions accordingly, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it too, you see. And he overlaid it with pure gold. Its top, its sides all around, and its horns as well. He also made for it a molding of gold all around it, following the instructions so well. For it he made two rings of gold under its molding, as the details did submit by its two corners on both sides, as holders for the poles with which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, as was understood. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices too, according to the work of the perfumer. All of these things Bezalel did as he was instructed to do. Lord God, it's all about Christ, so we see. 
and our faith is strengthened in him through each detail. He is portrayed in this word so perfectly, and so our faith is bolstered as we pass along life's trail. The care you have placed in this precious word leads us step by step better to knowing Jesus. In it, we have confidence through what we have heard, confidence of your great love and care for us. In Christ, you are with us, Christ faithful and true, and because of him, we shall forever praise and glorify you. Hallelujah and amen. (sighs) Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous, marvelous passage that we've been given today. Great things are in there. We've seen them in the past. We've seen every single detail which pointed to Christ. And today we got a little bit of theology about what those things point to and what he did on our behalf. We thank you for that, that we, we can be built up and we can be edified in our faith by knowing that these things are certain and that you've recorded them for us to see these things. It's not like it's a mystery that we have to guess. It's right there in the open. And then the New Testament just explains it for us so that we can see every single step of human history from Adam all the way through to the end, that you have a plan, that that plan is good, and that plan is about Jesus. Thank you for that. Lord, there are those prayer requests that we had during the Prophecy Update and also before uh, we started today, people with things on their hearts and people with needs. We have people that are traveling, some to Key West right now. We have some that are going back to Fort Lauderdale in a short time and other people that are coming and going. We would pray for them. Pray for Jay and Joan who aren't here today. Not sure if they're okay or not, but I would pray that they're all right. And uh, Lord, we just want to give you glory and praise and honor for all that you've done for us. You are so good to us. Thank you. Thank you above all for the gift of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. And so we get the instruction from the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, just as everything else. We want to stick close to this word. Once we start making stuff up out of our head from this word or adding into it, our theology goes off. And eventually we go from bad doctrine to heresy. And that's a very sad place to be when somebody would stand and proclaim something which is heretical in nature. They have to stand before God and say, I told this group of people they didn't need to do this. Or I told these people that it was okay to do that. Imagine, imagine standing before God and being accountable for the souls that were under you because you taught wrong from this precious word. I, I can't even I can't even fathom it. You know, when I teach, I Lord, I'm so sorry if I'm wrong with anything. You know my heart that I wouldn't want to do that. And I would hope that every preacher of this word would do the same thing. Let me not be wrong in how I present this word. And some people just don't care. As I said, theology is hard work. It's something that we have to actually work at. We have to strain our minds. We have to strain our time in order to have proper theology. And so many people, they'll go off to a charismatic church and they'll say, I get my Holy Spirit and I get my guidance from him. And they don't even bother with the word as if it's secondary. When in fact, the only source that we know of any Holy Spirit at all is from this word. And he says to do something to show ourselves approved. What is it? Study. Study is hard work. When we were in school, we'd go home tired, right? We went to college and we were more tired. Study to show yourselves approved. And instead people say, I get the Holy Spirit and he tells me what to do in life. What a cop-out. What a way of saying, I just don't care what God has to say to me. I've got all of my week to just go do what I want and the Lord's going to take care of me on Sunday morning and that's enough. I feel so bad for people that have that attitude. Thank God for you all that come here and want to learn this word, God's superior word, and to be a part of what he is doing through this word in the person of Jesus For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he gave thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu olam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. He brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech ha'olam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good to have you guys here. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chocolate too. All you want. A handful <laughs> if you okay. want. It's all from him. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. I always get scared when uh, Sergio and Rhoda are here. I say the prayer in Hebrew, and they're probably over there snickering at my bad pronunciation. But <laughs> Lord, we thank you that they're here today. We thank you that they're present, and uh, they're such a help and a blessing to this ministry in so many ways. Their tireless efforts make it a, a place where we can share with the entire world, and we thank you for that. Lord, we also pray for Linda, who's at home, and she's uh, overstrained herself on Thanksgiving, and we would ask that she would learn to not do that with her new hip. And uh, Lord, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for the fellowship that we have among ourselves here and uh, those who share with us online. We love you, and we praise you. We commit the week ahead to you, and we look for it with anticipation. Guide us, O Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.